Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. You know, I'm out here reporting live from Lake Minnetonka in Minnesota. I'm pleased to report there's about two and a half feet of snow on the ground, and I'm standing out here with what I would believe to be is about two to three dozen other media members were all lined up one after another, waiting for our turn to get exclusive one-on-ones with Jimmy Butler after what was, by all accounts, uh, the greatest practice in NBA history. I, I see <laughs> CNN out here. I think I see RT, Al Jazeera, your favorite you know, Infowars sports. I mean, we've got really all the heavy hitters in international global media have all descended upon this spot. Uh, to really pick apart the carcass of the Minnesota Timberwolves and to try to finally nudge poor Jimmy Butler to Miami. You know, it was a big a big day for InfoWars Sports and really everybody who loves just crazy sports stories. I think like the Jimmy situation had really kind of taken a back seat over the last week or two i mean i can't speak for you or really anyone else but personally like after about 72 hours i kind of shifted and was just like you know what i don't know if i care that much about this story so somebody just wake me up when all this is over yeah no great point i mean we did like three straight podcasts about it but i do think we took (laughs) out we took at least one off right over the last two weeks to not talk about it well, no, but it's funny because when we were doing the podcasts, like the the ultimate conclusion was we have no idea how the hell this is going to end. Everybody looks bad and this is kind of depressing for everyone involved. And so it just wasn't a very entertaining story. I mean, even Jimmy as a superstar came with a lot of red flags that would make a lot of teams pause. And so... The whole thing just wasn't particularly interesting to me. No no doubt. I mean, we're out here begging Josh Richardson to be thrown into a trade package. Like, come on. Like, this is not... (laughs) Exactly. This is not the A-list blockbuster type deals that we're looking for. And then today happened, and it got so crazy and so weird that you and I felt the need to split the NBA preview episode in two. Because, look, I'll be honest, I was already feeling a little wary about potentially dropping like a two hour and 15 minute NBA preview episode. And I know we've gotten some listeners who say like, why does Sharp worry about that? I worry about that specifically because I know as a podcast consumer myself, when I see that someone has dropped like a two hour podcast, I just say like, I, I can't commit that much time. I'm sorry. Like, well, no here's, the how thing, much I Andrew, like it. here's the thing. If you just don't spend 10 minutes every episode worrying about how long the podcast will be, it's going to be <laughs> Look, 10 minutes shorter than it would have been. It, and you know what? If we cut down your 15-minute monologues to start every podcast, we may be in better shape as well. But, you know, here we are. We can only be us. So, Hey, hey look, I was also glad to split this podcast into two because you were basically going to give me 90 minutes to talk about all 30 teams. I was planning to just go 90 straight and just not let you speak. So th- <laughs> Jimmy this, Butler style. <laughs> yeah, I, no doubt. I mean, fewer profanities, you know, all due respect to Elizabeth. But yeah, I was not really going to be sharing The Rock a lot if we tried to squeeze everything into one episode. Okay, well, now that we have a little bit more time, we can kind of 
stretch out a little bit, luxuriate, and talk through the Jimmy Butler situation, I want to start by reading you some tweets. Is that cool? Please read them. Okay, so for anyone who did not spend all of Wednesday afternoon on NBA Twitter, here is how things kind of unfolded. It began with a tweet from Woj who said, All-star Jimmy Butler participated in Minnesota's practice, a session that included him verbally challenging teammates, coaches, and front office, league sources told ESPN. Butler was vociferous and emotional at times, targeting Thibodeau, Layden, Towns, Wiggins. Story soon on ESPN. So that was number one. Number two, we started to get a a couple more details trickling out. Woj follows up with, at one point in a scrimmage, sources said, Butler turned to GM Scott Layden and screamed, you effing need me. You can't win without me. True. Butler left teammates and coaches largely speechless. He dominated the gym in every way. Jimmy's back. <laughs> Which, like, credit to Woj. My, I will say this to, to start here. My predominant reaction to most of this was who the fuck is sending Woj these little lyrical morsels from Wolves practice but he did a really good job chronicling all this in the most melodramatic way possible well people forget I mean Woj has written books he used to be an incredible column writer back when he did that you know sort of more as his main uh, focus uh, before he was just the breaking news guy or, or the main breaking news guy so Woj can write and I would love to see uh, Woj write even more but here it's just like he's just playing with everybody he's like you're gonna give me 280 i'm gonna use all of them you know what i mean like (laughs) jimmy's back (laughs) it was great um okay so then keith smith follows up and says i spoke with a wolf staffer who said about today's practice it was bad guys come in angry having bad days all the time This was as bad as I've ever seen a practice in all my years in the NBA. And then uh, Miami Heat Beat follows up with a quote from Amin Alhassan on ESPN's The Jump. He said, Jimmy Butler took the third string and beat the starters in a scrimmage, which is where it begins to get particularly crazy because... To me, I was imagining Jimmy Butler just kind of walking into Wolves practice and cursing everybody out and kind of being more of a nuisance than anything else and and forcing everything to screech to a halt. I did not imagine that he was actually playing, let alone beating Cat and Wiggins and just punking them in front of the entire organization with a bunch of third string guys like Marcus George's Hunt and whoever else is out there. Uh, But that's how it went down, apparently. And then this is completely uncorroborated, but um, a Twitter user named Mgrads, who seems to be fairly credible, said, I do know that when it came time for him, Jimmy Butler, to run with the third string, he said, I got Cat and all of it is getting shut down because he's soft. So he guarded Cat in the scrimmage and you guys don't respect this man? Man, stop. And then the final uh, note from Woj, before I open this up to you. Woj says, A lot of Minnesota players left Timberwolves practice today, energized by Butler's performance, 
mesmerized with him taking end-of-the-bench players and running the table on the regulars, sources said. At the end, he marched out like if a mic drop. Uh, And that mistake is Woj's, not mine. And then the final sentence, Butler delivered a tour de force. So, uh, that's another one where I'm like, who is feeding you that information? I refuse to believe that the majority of Timberwolves players left today's practice energized, but uh, there you go. Well, what the funniest, are your reactions here, Ben? The funniest possible answer to that question of who fed that last detail would be Thibodeau, because I bet Thibodeau <laughs> <laughs> was, <a> great theory. <laughs> was completely energized by Butler just punking everyone. It was probably like waiting for Jimmy on the side of the court with a you know a water bottle and a, a towel to drape over his neck and say welcome back you know you did it you know what a- man let me say one thing here before I let you finish uh not only is that a great theory that's got to be the correct answer because I think even like people in Jimmy's camp would be like all right it's a bridge too far to say that the whole team actually loves Jimmy Butler now and is feeling great about the season. Like we can't push it too far. But Thibodeau, I could absolutely see coming to that conclusion. No, I mean it would be a classic coach spin. But uh, I, a few thoughts here. First of all, save me the martyr talk about how unbelievable he looked taking over the gym. Look, this is a gym. <laughs> this is a gym waiting to be taken over. How many guys can you even name on Minnesota's roster at this point? Seven. You know, like on a good day, maybe seven or eight. And this is not a good team. Jimmy was 100% right that they can't win without him. That doesn't say anything. Well, it says a little bit about Towns and Wiggins and where they're at. But it also says a lot about their overall collection and their group. It's just not a very good group. Um, And they are built basically around having an all-star wing out there in Jimmy Butler. So while he's being factual, he probably doesn't need to say it in the way that he said it. Um, Right. And it doesn't really mean that much. Congratulations. There's lots of teams who wouldn't be able to win in the NBA without their best player. I'm not sure he really proved the point that he was hoping to prove uh, to anyone. Now, uh, you know, on top of that, you know, this town stuff, I'm going to take you over it in practice and all that. I mean, I, I don't know. I've seen guys work out during the summer. I've heard the trash talk five on five. To me, it wasn't quite as sensational as it seemed like a lot of people thought it would be. I mean, you know, it does get personal in these five on five situations. The fact that it leaked so quickly, I think, is newsworthy. And the yeah, fact and that. Probably telling as to who leaked it. Very telling. And I do also think that the fact that we haven't really heard a response from Towns or Wiggins in a meaningful way is also telling here. I, I mean, to me, and I hate to be Mr. Cynical, doesn't this just feel like a publicity stunt? Isn't the the big winner from this entire fiasco potentially Jimmy, who has raised the specter of like crazy internal chaos and dysfunction and Minnesota's a laughingstock, they have to trade him. Like, isn't that what he was going for by doing this? Uh, yeah, you know, I think that's my ultimate conclusion at the end of everything. And it's a little bit anticlimactic to talk about it that way. I mean, I will say separate from what it says about Jimmy, I do think that number one, it's like this Wolves practice is the NBA practice equivalent of like that dream team scrimmage in Monte Carlo. Like I, I will read every single detail i would love to see any sort of video that emerges from minnesota like because regardless of whether it was stage managed or not i think that 
the whole thing must have just been so bizarre that it would be fascinating to to learn more about the mechanics of how all this happened. However, I also wonder if video would make it seem that much more sad, though. I mean, to me, this oh, does seem like kind That's of a, a very point. a very sad scene, doesn't it? It's like you just picture him storming in, everyone being like, oh, hey, like great to see you after six weeks we've been waiting. Like Jeff Teague was like <laughs> talking to the media like two weeks ago and being like, you know, it probably would have been a good idea if we had actually like worked out together before training camp. That seems like a pretty smart thing that lots of other teams are doing. Jimmy yeah. shows up one week before the season starts uh you know coincidentally or not right before he's about to get start uh you know start getting docked uh game checks and he wants to you know make everyone bow to, at his presence i mean to me it, it it's really not like this triumphant scene people are trying to paint like it's kind of sad it's kind of sad yeah. and small i totally agree with you and to me i think that that point kind of underscores why i would I, I still can't understand why they haven't moved on from Thibodeau in all this because I think it's been sad and uncomfortable and obvious for a while where this is all headed. And Thibodeau is the one that is kind of holding up any kind of resolution from this. And I understand that he has the need to get the best deal he can. And at the same time, though, I mean, you look at Wiggins and Towns, like this is not good for their development this is a really tough situation for them to be in and i think we can tell jokes about whether or not they're soft or not but like it's just not healthy for anyone involved and thibodeau was ultimately the guy who can kind of end it and he hasn't and i think like from the outside it seems crazy that it has dragged on as long as it has and we should all be conscious of the fact that like it's even more depressing on the inside and even weirder day to day for the people who are actually having to live it. So, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, guess I agree with you. I'm not that worried about the impact on Wiggins because like, if this doesn't wake him up, if this doesn't shake him up, I mean, it's not like he's killing it in the preseason, you know, like to me, it basically comes down to Butler versus towns, right? And is yeah. Butler in the best interest of growing towns, into you know a, a top five type player here over the next few years and I think everyone couldn't agree the answer to that question is no and so that's why you know the front office and the coaching staff uh, as you just pointed out should be you know much more amenable to this idea of trading him and just trying to figure out what's next by building around towns um, I, I said a few weeks ago that I thought this season would tell us a lot about towns I think yeah. this practice is going to tell us a lot about Towns because I think he needs to step up. And, uh, you know, Yahoo Sports and Chris Haynes reported that he tried to give a little message to the team after practice, after this whole stunt, and, and maybe it wasn't very well received. Towns, you're the max guy now. I know you're young. I know you're fairly quiet by nature, but it's time to grow up. You know, you need to take this team back. And look, that doesn't mean you have to beat Jimmy Butler one-on-one -on -one in practice. But you have to show some backbone and, and make the veteran guys on that roster believe in you and believe that this is your time. Now, I don't think that means he should feed into this back and forth and get himself up on all these videos like Jimmy Butler's doing these interviews with ESPN and all that and you know try yeah. to turn this into like a he said, he said type situation. But he needs to be taking the steps as a leader right now because it's his team. He's gotten the money. It's time. It's going to be his team in the future. Uh, do it, Carl. You know, simple as that. <laughs> Carl. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you, though. And I mean, look, I told you a couple weeks ago, it really rubbed me the wrong way 
when Kat's response to the whole Jimmy Butler saga was to pretend that there was never anything wrong between them. And he came out at Wolves Media Day and said, I really liked Jimmy. Like, I just, for whatever reason, he felt that it was better to pretend that everything was fine and or everything had been fine and uh, and that anyone reading into their relationship was crazy. And as a as a observer, it just kind of, rubbed me the wrong way and I hope that Cat kind of like asserts himself more than more than that interview and more than he has so far in this process. Totally. On the Butler side, I should I should be clear. For me, this was really cool and hilarious. Not not cool, but it was like I was all in enjoying every detail for the first like 2 or 3 hours of the news. Um, I mean, and I was imagining Jimmy Butler as like Denzel Washington at the end of training day in the middle of Wolves practice. The It all became lame, though, when we found out that there was an interview with Rachel Nichols scheduled at the end of Wolves practice and that this was all part of like a calculated PR scheme. And I, I think that's what you've been alluding to, but we should just be explicit, like, this was cool. It was King Kong ain't got shit on Jimmy Butler. And then it turned out that like this is part of a, a calculated play from his agents. Well, and kudos to uh, Rachel Nichols for being on the spot and getting that interview and being yeah, ready to rock. It's and great getting, for her. And getting, you know, good material. I mean, I definitely go watch it. You know, if you're a basketball fan, you know, you, you can't take your eyes off of it. This is a car crash like happening day after day after day. And so, you know, don't be ashamed to be a rubbernecker. Um, but here's my question for you. I think it was on last week's episode where I predicted that Jimmy would eventually have to come back and he might throw a basketball at Andrew Wiggins's head and that he would be screaming profanities at Carl Towns. I want to ask you this. When I made those predictions, which were obviously like halfway in jest, did you think that I would be proven right and actually proven <laughs> conservative in my outlook that Butler would surpass all of my worst expectations for him so rapidly within one week? I mean, wh what did you make of that? No, I thought you were crazy at the time. And when you said it at the podcast, I was like, oh, really? Do we have to go down this digression now and pretend that that's a real thing that could happen? <laughs> so I was quietly <laughs> annoyed on this side of the line. Um, but... You know, I well smarten up, Nas. You might learn something. <laughs> hey, clearly, never doubt Ben Golliver. That's that's the lesson today, for real. Um, no, what I would say though is that there was a, a report this morning where Woj came out and said that Jimmy Butler was at the Wolves facility, and it was unclear whether he would practice, and that was kind of like the smoke before the fire. And um, I did think about it after that first news hit came out and said you know it would be very perceptive of jimmy butler to realize that him showing up at wolves practice is actually a lot more threatening to that team and organization than him sitting out the first few weeks of the season and so in that respect i was like you know gotta give credit where it's due like jimmy wants to get out of here and that's probably the smartest play um, and again, I just want to be clear. I was not trying to take a shot at Rachel Nichols. That it's great that she was able to get that news. It just um, no, it kinda... didn't sound. It didn't sound like you were. I mean, you were trying okay. to take a shot at Jimmy for sort of like having having <laughs> his go. media roll uh, uh, rollout ready to go afterwards. And you know, that was kind of the joke that I was making at the start too. And it, it did seem choreographed. But I think there's actually two benefits from doing it that way. And 
I think it's important that we kind of call it out that that's what he was doing, but I don't think it was dumb or shady no. or anything like that because number one, it it waves the flag as you know uh, large and as you know forcefully as you could wave it to say, look, I want out of town, right? Like, don't forget about me. Yeah. Uh, but what it also does is it sidesteps the normal awkwardness that would ensue if the local media was just like shows up after practice and like, wait a minute. Jimmy's here. Why is Jimmy here? And then everybody would swarm over to Jimmy Butler and ask him the questions. Like, are you ready to be a Timberwolf again? Like, and there would be maybe this vibe, like he came back with his tail between his legs and every single one of his teammates would sort of be asked about him. And they'd all have to go through the like, oh, it was so nice to have Jimmy back, even though they didn't really want to. I mean, just a normal re-entry after what he has done here over the last couple of weeks would have been a pretty dicey way to... Uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> a dicey thing to kind of maneuver. So doing it this way, it, it was actually kind of a practical way to do it. I mean, of course, he burns his entire organization, all of his teammates, his coach, his general manager, and his owner. But it was practical for Jimmy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. Well, should we transition to the Wolves? We can kick off our Western Conference preview with a little Wolves talk. Oh, um, more wolves talk. Let's do here it. We, here we go. And really, well, it's a, a variation on the theme at the top here. Luke says, as a wolves fan, my heart is in a very dark place right now. Is there any hope for the future? Please be honest. I want the full Gulliver treatment on this one. So the floor is yours, Ben. Um, I mean, I, I'm not sure I could be much darker than I just was. I mean, I rode off Wiggins. <laughs> I said the roster is trash. You know, we, we poked holes in, in, in Tom Thibodeau being deep throat for Woj. Uh, yeah. You know, we've, we've already taken every shot. I think I called Glenn Taylor a broke boy uh, billionaire at one point. <laughs> uh, I mean, we've definitely had our fun with this group. Uh, okay. To me, if we strip it all away, right, is there any hope? The hope is this. You have Carl Anthony Towns. This is going to be a top five, top 10 player very shortly in the NBA. He has his flaws. We've picked apart his defense. But what we know about Towns is this. Extraordinarily skilled offensively, can create his own shot, is going to make teams better with his presence on the court, uh, can shoot the three, can be used in a lot of different ways. Once he gets the right coach who connects with him and is able to kind of coax max effort out of him, which I'm not sure we've totally seen from Thibodeau, yeah. Um, they're going to be in that kind of a spot, almost where Milwaukee is this year, where they finally got the right coach for Giannis, correct? Mm -hmm. I also think you're in a situation where, uh, you know, if you take a step back this year, it does give you the opportunity to potentially reload a little bit, uh, you know, with the youth movement. And I think that's desperately needed. You need to get a lot of these supporting cast players more on Towns' timeline as compared to Butler's timeline. And that is going to be a painful transition to go through, but to have it blow up earlier is better than faking it and then having to blow it up down the road, right? Like if you yeah. know you're not on Jimmy's timeline with Taj and Derek and Luol and all these guys, it's better to just kind of acknowledge that up front. And Jimmy is sort of forcing them to acknowledge that. Uh, at the same time, look, we were never singing very optimistic songs about Anthony Davis early in his career in New Orleans. And I think, frankly, that's what Towns is headed well, for here. Wait a second. I was singing lots of really optimistic songs about Anthony Davis in no, New Orleans. About him individually, but not about their situation. I mean, you didn't think they were going to the Western Conference Finals. You didn't think that they were going to put together a super team around him. And I think that that's sort of where we're at with the Timberwolves fan mentality, which is 
two years ago, they're thinking we're going to be a, a consistent player with this young core, these multiple number one picks in the Western Conference Finals, say in three years, and we're going to be there every year. We're going to be a threat to Golden State because they don't have a matchup for Towns. And yeah. I think what we're seeing now is they no, did think that for sure. <laughs> What you're really looking at is a one-man army who's going to be doing his best to try to carry teams into the first round of the playoffs, but probably coming up short for a few years. But on the bright side, at least you have your one-man army under contract for the next five seasons, and he's a pretty likable guy, and he will be much happier and more productive once Butler's out of the picture. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned the Warriors, because I think if you go back two years, it was the final year with Sam Mitchell. The Wolves were still awful, uh, but then they had one season with Cat and Wiggins where they went and beat Golden State. I think it was pretty late in the year, but they looked really good, and um, and it did look like they, the Golden State didn't have a solution for Towns, and everybody was like, wow, so this team is the future. Like, this team is legit. They have two number one picks. They had Zach Levine at the time, and everyone was kind of just penciling them in to own the next five or six years. And it was more than the, uh, it was more than just that Warriors game. But I do think that Warriors game kind of inspired a shift in the way we thought about that team. And uh, maybe that was a curse too. So, I, to be honest with you, Ben, I'm a little disappointed. I don't feel like I got the full Golliver treatment there because I think the correct answer, is there any hope for the future? I don't think there is. I think that this is just dark for the Wolves. I think it's going to be frustrating with Cat and Wiggins. I talked to a Wolves fan earlier in the day, uh, a friend in D.C. here. He texted me and said, I, I honestly think I'm on Jimmy's side in all of this. And then he t- sent me... A tweet from a Minnesota sports writer named Aaron Gleeman who said, Jimmy Butler being what finally gets Minnesotans to emotionally detach from the burden of Wolves fandom would make him the most valuable player in team history. And so that's where my Wolves buddy is at. And I think like detaching from this team for a little while is probably a healthy play. Um, And I would buy into the hope if... They had fired Tibbs and and managed this process with someone else. But to me, keeping him around to kind of execute the Jimmy trade and try to navigate this like NBA nightmare just reflects like a, a ownership group that has learned no lessons. And so uh, it's well, here's not another, inspiring. Here, here's another method for hope. What if it's not just the fan base that is so turned off by this Jimmy affair? What if Glenn Taylor, Mr. Broke Boy Billionaire himself, <laughs> decides that he doesn't want to have anything to do with the NBA anymore after this plays out? And frankly, would anyone blame him? Like, if you're this nice no. old man who's run this terrible team for 20 years, you finally get your hopes up, oh, we actually have a shot, and then Jimmy just completely stabs you in the back and just walks off the job, doesn't show up for camp, and yeah. makes as big of a, a ruckus as he could possibly make and basically treats you like the small market team you've always feared that you were. Uh, isn't that when you start, you know, calling the Goldman Sachs guys and say, "Hey, look, let's quietly put this team on <laughs> put the out market. Some feelers. <laughs> Let, let's see what other billionaires might be out there and interested in, you know, taking a gander on a uh, a Midwestern basketball franchise." And I think, from a hope standpoint, for the Timberwolves, that's the only place it's going to come from. They gotta well, have a new. They have to have a new owner. Okay. They have to. 
there's hope, but you're also at the edge of a cliff there because keep in mind the Wolves are probably the fourth most popular team in Minneapolis behind the Twins, the Wild, and the Vikings. And, you know, if they Wait, what's left... The, what, what's like, the Wild? Is that like water polo or what is that? <laughs> it's hockey. It's oh. And I'm told that people fucking love hockey up there. So, Oh, yeah, they're I, probably not even fourth because Minnesota, University of Minnesota hockey is pretty good too, right? Yeah. Um, okay, so they're top seven in Minnesota. Continue. <laughs> All of which is to say, it's not inconceivable that this team could be sold in four years and moved. That we they could be the Seattle Timberwolves. Um, well, perfect. So, we don't even need to do the uh, full golfer treatment if you're out here selling the franchise. <laughs> no, this is what people don't realize. When, if I'm going to be the the negative one, it's actually going to get a lot darker. But. Um, Anyways, on that note, let's shift to the rest of the West. But first, Ben, have you ever looked at your credit card statement and been shocked by the interest rate? Did you know you could actually roll all of your credit card debt into one monthly payment at a lower fixed interest rate? Well, good news, because today's episode is brought to you by Lightstream, and Lightstream offers credit card consolidation loans from 5.89% APR with auto pay. That is lower than the average credit card interest rate of over 18% APR. Ben, tell me a little bit more about Lightstream. Lightstream will get you a loan from $5,000 all the way up to $100,000, and you can get those funds as soon as the day you apply. Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a great interest rate and no fees. And Andrew, This is the most fun fact of all. Lightstream plants a tree with every single loan they fund. That's right. Less debt for you, more oxygen for everybody else. There you go. Well, lots of fun facts in here. Our listeners will get a special discount on top of Lightstream's already low rates. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash open floor. They want us to spell out the name. So that is L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash open floor. Now, Andrew, hold yourself during this mandatory disclosure. Subject to credit approval. Rate includes 0.50% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash open floor. That's lightstream.com slash open floor for more information. There we go. We've got a bunch of questions to get to. And Ben, you told me at the outset that you wanted to have real honest takes. Let's get into some quick hitting stuff and not kind of dawdle as we as we move through these questions. So it's with that spirit that we we can jump in here. This is my season preview podcast goal for us, and this is going to be for this first part uh, podcast, you know, the Western Conference, and then part two, the Eastern Conference. I'm going to try not to filibuster like I tend to do, uh-huh. and you're going to try not to hedge like you tend to do, <laughs> okay? It's going to be takes only, straight to the point, so we can get in, get out. How's that sound? And it, and I, I'm mentioning this after we just spent 29 minutes on the Timberwolves, so let's, let's do the other 14 teams here <laughs> yeah. in, in rapid-fire style. Okay, we are nothing if not the worst. Um, All right, let's get into it. Dallas Mavericks. Chris says, is there any real chance Dirk Nowitzki wins sixth man of the year? 
I nope. read Next somewhere question. that the tanking Next mass... question. Nope. <laughs> Hold on. Hold on. All right. Can't go that quick. Uh, I will say this. The idea of him winning sixth man of the year is the first time I've cared about the Mavericks in like three and a half years. Um, I mean, we went through, we talked about the Mavs at the end of our last podcast and I kind of feigned some enthusiasm, a little curiosity with DeAndre Jordan. But in reality, we're talking about a 10th place team here. Um, And the timeline that has Dallas like stealing the eighth seed where Dirk also like leads a a killer bench unit and wins sixth man of the year is a world I want to live in. And that's the only Maverick story that I could really get excited about this year. Unless you got a time machine to like 2011, I I don't really see this, you know, like this happy go lucky Dallas story coming together quite that nicely. But yeah, I, I do, I do think when you have Luca and when you have Deandre, those two pieces give you a lot of structure on this rotation. And I think that's going to, you know, translate to a lot of positive developments. First of all, they're going to be much more entertaining to watch. Like if you wanted to watch the Mavericks the last couple of years, you had to get yourself in the right spirit of being like, you know what? J.J. Barea, it's your time to shine. Let's do this. Let's get all in on J.J. Barea. And that was the basically the, the depth you would have to, you know, climb to to even talk yourself into what's going on down there. Yeah. To me, the, the Dirk Twilight has just been sad and, frankly, you know, pretty depressing and very slow to unfold. And it hasn't been very interesting from a narrative standpoint. But if you put, you know, Luca and DeAndre into the mix, not only do you get more highlights, more entertaining play, but you've just got better structure to your overall offense. You take guys like Harrison Barnes and Wesley Matthews, you put them back into like the complementary roles that they should be in. Uh, yeah. And all of a sudden, I think you're cooking with something. Now, does that mean you're a top 10 offense? No, probably not yet. You're probably closer to like, you know, 13, 14, 15 in that range. But I do think you're right. They should be in that playoff bubble mix in the Western Conference. And when you look back at how ugly the last couple of years has been, that's a big win. I mean, that's a pretty nice summer. Yeah. And, you know, the thing about the Dirk Twilight is it has been pretty dark. And watching him just kind of creak up and down the floor is tough because people forget he was actually like, pretty athletic in his prime and people talk about him as if he was just this great shooter who found a way to kind of stretch the floor and revolutionize the game that way but like Dirk was an awesome athlete in the middle of his career and has only only over the last couple seasons become this kind of creaky earthbound uh legend I guess um but every time I start to get depressed about that I remember the title he won in 2011 and how that was probably the coolest title I've seen in the last 20 years and how everything after that is gravy. And Dirk is basically just doing what he wants, which is continue to make like $15 million a year and just play basketball every day. And so that makes me happy. There's a lot of NBA stories that don't have a happy ending, but slow Dirk down, has had slow that. down, slow down. You need to explain that statement. Why was it so great for the first time in 20 years that that was the most fun? What what about it made it so fun? Um, I think it was just knowing how cool Dirk is and how much a title was going to mean to his legacy. And you know, look, if you go back to that actual playoff run. Like, the Mavs were underdogs in every series they played past the first round. Um, and, like, the, they were just, like, number one, really good. And number two, watching them come through, they beat that Lakers team. 
and then watching them come through in the finals was like shocking. I still can't believe it really happened. And I think like if you play that series four or five times, the the Heat probably win four out of five. Um, and so knowing all that made it that much cooler that Dirk could come through and kind of put his legacy, make his legacy sort of untouchable uh, for the for the rest of time because like no one could ever take that away from him. And and that's cool because he like. People like Dirk deserve to be remembered that way. Yeah, that was a super memorable run. I remember covering the first round series. I might have actually picked against Dallas in all four rounds, like my official picks. I think I was yeah. at CBS at the time. Maybe I might have gone over four on, on those uh, prognostications. But the amount of momentum they had already built by the first round, they were so cocky heading into that second round series. And everybody was already kind of counting them out at that point. Um, you know, they knew they were onto something. They knew that they were kind of grooving in a way that teams rarely do. And, you know, you're right. That was a, a pretty memorable team. Well, wait, let me add, though. The flip side of that story is someone like Chris Paul, who is incredible and literally one of the best point guards, one of the, probably one of the three best point guards we've ever seen play the game. And we'll have this like weird, complicated legacy where people like me and maybe you are like defending him and claiming that he was better than he ever got credit for and he's in a weird zone and it's not to say that rings mean everything but it's it's kind of nice to see guys sidestep that no man's land um and so shout out to Dirk uh and with that let's move on to the Pelicans Corey says the Pelicans had a pace of 120 in their first preseason game what pace do you think they'll settle in at this year? Also, the Pels had a top five defense after All-Star Weekend and when and the trade that added Miritich. Will they ever be able to come back to that level? What do you think, Ben? I have never looked up pace statistics in my entire life, let alone for a preseason basketball game. So I'm, I'm going to leave this one to you. No, I think they're going to probably be in the top three of pace if everything goes the way they want it to play. They've got no anchors. You know, nobody is slowing them down. And they realized down the stretch, like uh, Corey mentioned, which was really the most successful stretch in terms of wins and losses of Davis's career, that the best way to play him was just to have him run as fast as possible. When you look at the league as a whole last year, uh, it was the fastest pace we've seen in a long time. I think that there's going to be other teams in the mix trying to push the Pelicans for sort of that number one pace ranking. Uh, the Lakers, you know, absolutely come to mind there too. But when you look at an addition like Randall, when you look at how Miritich fits, uh, when you look at all their wing guys, you know, Peyton, uh, you know, to me as a point guard, as a guy you can just, you know, tell, never stop. And he, he should be able to keep the pace up as well. Uh, so they should be playing very, very fast. In terms of the defensive question, that's where I'm I'm more skeptical and more dubious. I actually picked Anthony Davis as my defensive player of the year for this season. I I think that you know it could be one of those situations where if he doesn't win MVP, maybe voters throw him some love in a different category. Yeah. Uh, but I I do think that they don't have enough talent overall around him uh, outside of Holiday to really be that truly elite defense. Um, and I think sometimes they may be skewing their, their stats a little bit just based on the sheer, uh, you know, high pace that they play, right? Like it kind of distort things a little bit, uh, you know, makes average defenses look, look a little bit better sometimes if you play super fast uh, and just catch teams off guard. Uh, and, and so I think, you know, they're going to settle into me 
overall in that like six to nine seed window in the Western Conference. I think they're going to be uh, much better on offense than they are on defense. Their over under is forty five and a half. What would you What would you say there? Man, that is a really, really good line. Um, I would first of all, I would stay away uh, if I was betting it because, <laughs> as, as we know, if Davis misses five games, like you can forget about that. Um, but I would probably he- hesitatingly go under. Yeah. Um, well, we got a lot. I agree with you. I'm not super high on the Pels. They have no good wings. Alfred Payton is not good and is going to have to play a lot this year. Julius Randle doesn't fit. It's just I'm not a fan of the way they played this. They they learned the wrong lessons from the Wait, final down. two or three months last year. Why don't you think he fits? What's that? Why don't you think Randle fits? Um, Because why wouldn't you just spread the court around Anthony Davis and surround him with shooters? I mean, I, I, that seems to be almost too easy. Like may, and Maybe I'm missing something, but I don't, I don't understand the approach there. Yeah, well, I think what they're thinking is they don't want Davis to only play five. Like, he can't play yeah, five for 45, I, 48 minutes a night, right? So you get a defensive five in Randall. You get a guy who won't slow your tempo because he loves to play up and down fast. You sacrifice some of the shooting, but you do get to the free throw line more because, you know, he's such kind of a bully. Um, and you probably don't play him together with Davis that much. Uh, right. you, know, you try to s- stagger them a little bit. Uh, and you just you get your shooting from Miritich. I mean, can't that work fairly well? I mean, it is, but you you started out there saying you get your defensive five with Julius Randle. Like I don't I don't know if he's the greatest defensive five in the world, um, but I see what you're saying. And if they stagger them and try to get the most out of Randle whenever Anthony Davis sits, like that's not the worst plan in the world. It just isn't the greatest plan either. And uh, well, let me, let me say this: after watching the Lakers for a week and a half during the preseason, they would <laughs> well, they would kill for Julius Randle as a defensive five. Yeah, we'll get there. We'll get to the Lakers for now. Moving on to the Nuggets. Uh, Steven in Germany says in one of your last podcasts, Andrew gave Jokic an F for his defense advanced defensive metrics tell a different story as the nuggets are clearly better when Jokic is out there. What do you say, Andrew is Jokic better than an F and do you guys use the eye test or do you have defensive stats that you trust? Um, I'll start here. I... Let me explain the F because we heard yeah. from a, a couple different people, the Nuggets fans pushing back against that grade. And I'm not here to pretend I'm an expert on his defense. And I think it's probably true that Jokic is better than his reputation. When I said that, which was on the top 100 podcast with you and Rob, I was honest to God in the middle of an argument and just working from two different memories that are burned in my mind, which is first... There was a game late in the year last season where it was Denver versus the Lakers and Jokic was guarding Isaiah Thomas on a switch and he was just out there wobbling and he got completely torched by Isaiah Thomas who's like barely in the NBA, also actually now on the Nuggets. Um, And it was just really, really rough. And in that moment, I made a mental note like, okay, the the Jokic defensive issues are pretty real. And then the second thing was that over the next couple weeks after that, 
the Nuggets were fighting to make the playoffs, and the whole time I was kind of dreading it because I I couldn't imagine a Nuggets Rocket series that didn't end in like complete disaster for Jokic, and that'll probably be true for a lot of playoff matchups with him, and that's where I was coming from. But having said that, like in the regular season, I think he's going to be pretty awesome this year, and I don't think that not being able to play against the Rockets or Warriors should sort of doom anyone. What do you think? Well, I'm surprised you didn't have a list of 20 defensive metrics to answer uh, the question. (laughs) Yeah, my my answer is I use the eye test. Sorry, Steven, to be very clear. Yeah, you use the eye test on three highlights per year and reach your conclusion. No, I'm kidding. I think... I'm the guy who coined Jokic, you know, being out there on stumps on ice skates, right? I mean, that's basically how I describe him in a very similar situation to the play you you mentioned with Isaiah Thomas. But I think it was from a game against Harden where he was just getting lit up yeah. play after play. And I think I viewed him when we were arguing about it as a better defensive, uh, you know, center than Towns uh, on the aggregate because I do think you know, size-wise, his ability to fill space, to kind of, like, coax people from not coming into the paint, um, you know, clearing the defensive glass. Uh, I think, and also just handling traditional centers, you know, with his size and, and with his length, I think that he does a better job in a lot of those ways uh, than Towns does. I just think he's more naturally built to do that. Uh-huh. I think that in certain situations that you're describing, especially super high-level playoff basketball in the Western Conference, Jokic has a chance to be an F. I mean, he has a chance to be so bad they have to take him off the court. But when we're looking at over the course of an 82-game season, I think that's going too far. You know, I would say, you know, C, you know, somewhere in that range among starting centers. I mean, he definitely has issues when you pull him away from the basket. Um, You know, he's going to have some issues fouling. He's not covering ground like you really need him to. And the smart elite point guards who know how to pick on the weakest link defensively are going to seek him out pretty easily and and do what they want to do. So that's where I'd put him in terms of, you know, defensive stats. Obviously we like real plus minus or or defensive real plus minus, Um, you know, and I tend to look at for bigs, I look at the field goal percentage allowed. Uh So what, what percentage do they give up on shots, especially within five feet? Um, You know, that gives me a little idea of like how good of a rim protector are they? And if you go and look at those stats, the guys who you think are blocking a lot of shots and contesting a lot of shots and, and really being active inside tend to line up very well uh, by that metric. You know, they tend to have a very low, you know, defensive field goal percentage. Yeah. Uh, and the other one. Yeah, for sure. And then I also like the on off stats, which he mentioned, right? Like if your bigs on there and, you know, he's your starting center, like that starting group should defend better than your backups, right? Uh, right. And if they don't, that means he's not really a, a great defender. Well, this got very boring very quickly. So let me shift to the bigger picture here. I'm pretty high on the Nuggets, and I think you are too. Did Jokic, like Eastern Con- or Western Conference semifinals questions aside, I think the Nuggets are going to be awesome this year. What do you think? No, I'm definitely in. Uh, I've watched them three times during the preseason. I'm probably the only person who's done that, yeah. uh, other than their, their coaching staff, just by coincidence here in L.A. Um, you know, Murray and Jokic have had a nice chemistry. Uh, Murray, I'm not sure he's been, like, blowing the doors off during the preseason, but he's looked solid. Uh, Harris was playing a little bit the other night. You know, he looks ready to go. I just like their starting five unit a lot. I think it really fits well. Uh, they've got some depth, just, you know, lots of athletes, versatility, 
uh, I like how they use Jokic and Plumlee in similar ways so you can kind of keep the same system going uh, you know, throughout the entire game. I think they're going to wear down a lot of teams that don't really have good benches. Um, and they also just look like they know how to play with each other. And that's been an issue yeah. because they've been so young in the years past. And they just kind of look like they're ready to hit the ground running as a group. Uh, and I think, look, at long last, right? This has been I like know. two, well, three, so four years. We've been waiting, you know? That's kind of my read on everything is like this year's Nuggets team is what we were all really excited about last September and October. And uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. You know, I don't want to jinx it with too too many expectations, but they are one of the teams in the West that I am really excited to watch. Um, and moving forward here, to a team that I'm not super excited to watch. Finlay says, can the Thunder as presently built push the best teams in the league by winning the rebound and defensive battles? Steven Adams and Russell Westbrook are two of the best offensive rebounders in the league at their positions. And Paul George and Jerry and Grant could hold their own if given the opportunity in a big lineup. Um, I'll start. I do think that that is kind of the best approach for OKC at this point is to try to play bully ball and muck up the games a little bit and hope that George and Westbrook are guys who can take over at the end to win close games. That's how they, how it worked two years ago. And it may have worked last year, except they had Mello out there on the perimeter who was playing like wobbly Jokic defense half the time. Um, and then also gumming up the offense at the same time. Uh, so I think that like OKC may look a little bit mo- more coherent this year. What, what about you? Yeah, I guess Mello wasn't capable of playing bully ball. He's out there playing uh, blubber ball. But <laughs> I, I like this idea of shifting some of these, these guys like Grant and Paul George up into that power forward spot to try to get another shooter or at least another ball handler onto the court. And that may be you know, Westbrook and Schroeder playing together at the same time. I think that's going to be a pretty good look for them. Yeah. Uh, In terms of can they compete with the best teams in the league, you know, using this like amazing strategy of offensive rebounds and defense. uh, To me, the answer is no, because they don't defend well enough as a team unless they're completely healthy. And, you know, we have questions about that given Robertson's status uh, and their kind of their depth issues behind him. Uh, and then also given Westbrook's presence, frankly, like he just doesn't defend at a high enough level uh, at the point of attack to let you be that super elite defensive team that, you know, this formula would require. And then I also just don't think if you're trading, you know, like three pointers for putbacks or, or offensive rebounds as your strategic change, that that's ever really going to pencil out for you against teams like Houston or Golden State. They're just playing a smarter, more efficient brand of basketball. They're consistently getting better shots than the types of shots you're going to get in a crowd, in a, in the paint. Um, and so from that standpoint, uh, my answer would be a pretty quick no in terms of can they be in that top tier. But you know, I think they're going to be a first-round playoff team and, and pretty similar to last year. I think George will look better. They'll probably put more of a fight uh, up in the first round but I don't really see them advancing in this year's playoffs. Yeah, you know, the one thing I would add is that the OKC plan made a little bit more sense back in July when we were all kind of talking about this team as though Roberson was going to be coming back full strength. And at the time, I didn't realize how sketchy the track record was for guys recovering from the injury that he had. And... uh 
On top of that, news came out this past week that he suffered a setback and he's going to be missing the first two months of the season. And so because of that, I'm lower on the Thunder than I would have been. And I'm also, I've, I was low on the Thunder to begin with. I'm kind of done with this team and this experiment. And uh, I can't believe how much they sunk into Paul George and Russell Westbrook and... That's where we are. So uh, on that note, <laughs> let's let's move on to the Rockets. Well, in the interest of balance, though, I think the Schroeder play looks better now that you, when you don't have Robertson because you really totally. need guys who are NBA players to fill those minutes. And even if it's going to be weird, like who gets the ball, how well does he play off of Westbrook, how many minutes can you play them together, it's better to have a guy who is like a full-time starting point guard for multiple years and has shown he can do it uh, you know, playing and sopping up that playing time and uh-huh. just having one of these random G League wings that they keep pulling off the pile, you know, the Josh Hustises of the world and saying, all right, go out there and try not to go 0 for 4. You know, it's definitely a better plan to go this way. And the fact that they were able to get him while dumping Mello, it was like addition by subtraction, but also addition by addition. Yeah, um, I I agree with that, except that we should be very clear that when... Dennis Schroeder is like the the bright spot that you can potentially sell yourself on. Like it's probably not going to end very well. Um, but Houston, I heart Harden says <laughs> your favorite. Yeah, um, this guy's your best friend, isn't he? <laughs> well, we had to pare down these questions to fit everything in, and uh, he did take some shots at me. Apparently, I got it one of the Celtics Rockets games wrong last year, but shout out to iHeart Harden. He says, suppose tomorrow that the Rockets traded Brandon Knight and Clint Capella for Draymond Green and Klay Thompson and then proceeded to win the NBA title. How would you rank Harden, CP3, Durant, and Steph Curry in the following year's top 100? Which is a smart way to frame his argument, um, which I guess is that Durant and and Curry are overrated because they play in a perfect situation. Uh, I think that's bullshit, but I'll I'll hand the, the mic to you. Well, this is in a vacuum. So, you know, constructing these hypothetical scenarios to just try to give all the credit to your main guys and, you know, take all the credit away from the other guys kind of defeats the point of a vacuum. Yeah. Uh, I, I think the argument of like Harden versus Steph versus Katie, you know, it simply comes down uh, to me. Harden's, you know, best season, he had a lot of help last year. I mean, we shouldn't just say that Houston's got no help at all, right? Agreed. I think he actually had more help in Houston last year uh, than KD really had in Oklahoma City, you know, even in sort of his MVP year or the 2016 year. Um, I also think, you know, maybe he didn't have quite as much help as Steph Curry had during that like 2016 year where he was kind of doing everything like Harden did last year. But Steph won more games, had a higher offensive efficiency, basically did more than everything you know that, that Harden did. So to me, Harden's peak, which was last season, isn't better than either one of those guys' you know peak performances. Yeah, uh, and I think you know there's there's really no question that KD is a better all around player than Harden. So even if you want to say, well, look, you know the Thunder never won 65 games like the Rockets did last year. Um, again, if you give KD the supporting cast that Harden had and how well they all fit together and you throw that onto an Oklahoma City team, I think that they would have been you know, as successful or very close to as successful uh, you know, in that situation. So in a vacuum, to me, Harden's still third behind those guys. And 
Chris, just simply because of the age concerns, I don't think it matters which players you trade between teams. I think he's <laughs> yeah. always going to be fourth in this scenario. Isn't Strictly it? working with Ben's nerdy rubric as he makes these rankings every year, Chris Paul is always going to be docked, uh, which he should be. You know, under it, if you're using the Gulliver Mahoney framework, Chris Paul is ranked correctly year after year, and he keeps kind of defying regression that we expect to happen um which is part of why he's so incredible and deserves to be remembered better than he probably will be the well, hard and that's thing, why that's why he's in the top 10 too though like yeah you know, that's that's, true. that's part of it as well like he's getting his credit from how we do this we're not we're not writing him off because oh you're over 30 so therefore you're like you know the 50th ranked player but it just means you're not going to be better than steph curry and kevin durant when they're both in their primes yeah and and my point on that would be that in my heart and you know when we do the pod like i'm more i'm playing more of a fan role and as a basketball fan i just don't really care about this team or harden but as an objective journalist i did write last year a harden mvp column which said look like the door is open for him to be considered in that kd steph lebron conversation as one of the best players on earth and, and and maybe the best player on earth because like when you look at what he's accomplished over the last four years like it can stand up to just about anyone but what i said at the time was like harden had to go do it in the playoffs like the mvp for him was not really a step forward and we needed to see it and we didn't necessarily need to see him beat the warriors but we needed to see him like play his ass off to where everyone else steps back and is like holy shit like Harden is not going quietly, and that just didn't happen. And we don't need to well, belabor the point. I disagree with you on that. I what? really disagree with you on that. I don't think you gave him enough credit for how well he played at a very trying no, moment of look, that series. I'm not saying before, he was awful. Before, well, that's the thing. I, I mean, he he showed up when they needed him in the middle of that series when they could have cracked and lost in five games. He was the guy who pulled them through that, and I think that part got lost because of the 27 three pointers in Game Seven. Okay, I think that we overcorrect when we say that he was actually good. Like, if Harden wants to be in that best player alive, Steph Curry, Durant category, like, he's got to be better than he was in those Western Conference Finals. And I don't think that's a, con- a controversial statement, but, like, we're in such a I weird think that place is... with NBA Twitter conversations about Harden that, like, it's just, it it's fine. It's, all I will say is that, like, Harden's had every opportunity to take that next step, and he hasn't done it yet. Well, I think what you just said is the conventional wisdom right now, that Harden's still not proven it in the playoffs. And I think when you look at how they thrashed the Utah Jazz in the second round, which was a very good team. Because of Chris Paul. Not just because of Chris Paul. James Harden was a big part of it, too. And then in the Western Conference Finals, they were out in five if Harden doesn't rally the troops in the middle of that series, right? And so they pushed an all-time great team that's absolutely stacked and loaded to seven games largely because of James Harden. And, you know, frankly, uh, there were some moments there where, like, you know, they left some potential wins on the table that were pretty close and had those gone the other way, which I think yeah. is my heart Harden's point. All of a sudden, all the narratives that you're mentioning uh, are being rewritten and Harden's being crowned as this amazing player. And so to me, I think that the conventional wisdom still does not give him quite enough credit for how well he's played in the postseason. Okay. Um, yeah, we disagree there, but maybe Harden can have his Dirk moment, and that that's how this will end. And uh, well, l- let you me ask you this: I how, Harden will be validated. How did Houston get them to seven if Harden didn't have a good series? Well, how is that possible? 
we've been over this too many times, and we have too many other things to get to. Uh, P.J. Tucker played his ass off. Clint Capella was pretty good in that series. Chris Paul, in a couple of their wins, was huge. And, uh, I mean, you, you can go right down the line. The whole Rockets team was was kind of playing ab- above their heads and punching above their weight class. And Harden wasn't. He wasn't playing terrible, but he was not like playing out of his mind. And he was asked to do a lot. And so he that he was definitely their best and most important player in that series. You named everybody else besides him. Well, the, he's their best and most important player in every game they play. That's that. that so start. Say so start your explanation there. Say they got to Game Seven because of their best and most important player, not because of everybody else who happened to play above their heads. I think the difference in that series was the defense and their ability to switch. And it wasn't as much the offense, which is perfectly fine. Um, But I I just wouldn't credit Harden for the way that played out. Moving on, I do have one other Rockets question for you. Would you trade Eric Gordon and P.J. Tucker for Jimmy Butler? Because that was what was rumored today, that like the, the Rockets were willing to throw Eric Gordon on the table, but not willing to put... Gordon and Tucker on the table. Would you do that? To trade two of the most important players from the Western Conference Finals, two guys who did better than James Harden in the Western Conference Finals. <laughs> Eric why Gordon would you even... is another example of a guy who was punching above his weight class in that why, series. Why would you even suggest this question if that was the case, right? I mean, come on. Well, uh, no, look, I think Minnesota should not want to do that, and I think uh, Houston should not do that. I don't think it's going to take that much to get Jimmy Butler. Yeah. Um, I, I, what I don't understand is I, there's gotta be, it's hard for me to imagine that the wolves have any offer out there that is more attractive than getting Eric Gordon for the next two years. Cause I think he's got this season and next season, and then he hits free agency, but just getting Eric Gordon is a win. Eric Gordon is an above average starter and would really help a wolves team that is now too far along to sort of go back to square one and try rebuilding from scratch and so i I, it's shocking to me that that deal if offered has not been accepted because i don't think that they're going to do that well in the end but um there we go i would just i would just rather have josh richardson and whatever other salary i got i wouldn't care about a second asset if i could have josh richardson or eric gordon like regardless of the rest of the package like there's no question to me i'd rather have richardson um, I hear and, you. I just can't imagine that Tibbs is thinking about the long term here. Like, I, I think there may be other reasons that it hasn't happened, but like the idea that Tibbs is like, you know what, the long term asset, like Josh Richardson in 2022, could really help these guys. He's on the same timeline as Towns and Wiggins. Like, it's hard to believe that that's where his head's at. But you're right that if they could get Josh Richardson, that would be a bigger win. Um, Memo to to Glenn Taylor, like Eric Gordon's not really going to help you very much. Like we also saw what he was like in New Orleans when that team was going nowhere. <laughs> Eric Gordon <laughs> mysteriously was far less effective. And then PJ Tucker, I mean, that's going to be, uh, you know, a forced buyout within what, three weeks. I mean, he's, <laughs> yeah. he's not going to want to be up well, there either. So come on now, don't do that. PJ could definitely show up and have some like Jimmy Butler moments with those guys because I interviewed him uh, for Sports Illustrated a couple weeks ago and he was awesome. He, he, we had a lot of fun talking to each other. And he, at one point he was talking about the difference between 
being on the Suns and being on the Rockets, and he was like, man, it was it was two different leagues. It was incredible. <laughs> and so it would be going back to the other league to go get relegated to Minnesota. So for his sake, I hope that doesn't happen. Um, but moving on, Clippers, Ben. Luke says, regarding player tanking and potential media tanking, has anyone thrown around the idea that Lee Jenkins is feature writer tanking with the Clippers and planning a wild SI comeback later on in his career? What do you think? Well, I thought we weren't supposed to talk about player tanking anymore, but now all of a sudden <laughs> the idea has marinated and you've come around to the idea that it's possible. Yeah, well, for, for Lee, I, I want Lee back in my life, so I'm rooting for this to be a real thing, okay? You win. So, so I saw Lee Jenkins uh, last night, actually, at the Clippers preseason game. Okay. I think their team motto should be, huh, I forgot that guy played for the Clippers because that's their entire <laughs> roster. But these guys play really hard. Gallinari hasn't gotten hurt yet. Avery Bradley's uh, back from the dead. And they're just interesting. Like, they're good, clean, wholesome fun. You know, it's like kind of like, hey, you know, dad, take the kids out Sounds to a night. Or mom, <laughs> you know, take the kids out for, a, you know, a good, affordable night at the arena and catch sure. some professional basketball. That's sort of what they're going for here. Um, but Lee looks like he's having a blast. Now, he's doing that classic thing where he's definitely trying to submarine expectations as much as possible. Yeah. Uh, but I think he's hitting the ground running. Uh, hopefully, they'll be making some blockbuster trades here over the next 12 months that we can give him all the credit for, but also all the blame for if they don't go well. Um, but, you know, I've already said a comeback's, you know, coming, okay? Mike could only stay away from basketball for 18 months, okay? So that is the comparison <laughs> point. I'm using for Lee. I give Lee about 18 to 24 months before he starts getting the itch, you know, before the Birmingham Barons aren't able to kind of keep him engaged and and keep his competitive spirit going. And then he'll be back, uh, you know, writing somewhere publicly so that we can all enjoy his brilliant work. Yeah, I can't wait to have Lee back. You've convinced me that that is like a real thing and that in two years we're all going to be back together. In the meantime, though, I plan to savor every time we talk about the Clippers because hearing you try to sell me on Avery Bradley and good, clean (laughs) fun with that team, that's great. We're going to talk about them a lot more than we plan to this year. Um, Shout out Lee, though. It's a really interesting beat right now, Andrew, because they have like three or four riders on the whole beat, and you compare it to the Lakers, and you're talking about two different leagues between, you know, the Suns and the Rockets. I mean, the Lakers with 60 people videotaping LeBron coughing, Versus like Doc Rivers giving these eloquent post-game press conferences and like three people barely paying attention. Uh, It's definitely two different leagues. But I think the Clippers have a chance to maybe surprise people to a certain degree. I'm not going to pick them for the playoffs or anything rash like that. But I do think that they're going to be more watchable and more entertaining than you might expect. Uh, You know, of course... The injuries could inevitably, you know, come back and bite them. All their key guys, you know, tend to go down about six weeks into the season. But yeah. uh, for now, uh, it was a good time. You know, okay. I, I would would recommend. I give them a thumbs up on Facebook. <laughs> would recommend. Uh, I'm excited to watch Shea Gilgis Alexander because I've heard a lot of great things about him Baller. coming out of summer league. So that'll be interesting. 
No, he's uh, a baller, and he's ready to go. I mean, he's not afraid at all. He's, yeah. he's going right at defenders. He is uh, looking for his shot. He's taking you know contact, going to the basket. Uh, he's not some crazy above-the-rim point guard yet where you're just like, oh, my God, this guy's like the most athletic player on the court. But he's not afraid, well, and that's, that's what you want from a, a rookie point guard. And that's what I'm interested in. Is he, he was never kind of a wow athlete, but he's apparently savvy enough to dominate in other ways, or not necessarily dominate, but excel, let's say. Um, and so I want to see that. I want to see how that plays out. And as far as the little brother syndrome, like that has never been realer than it will be this year. And I'm excited about what crazy shit that may inspire Steve Ballmer to do this next summer. So that's also going to be fun to watch. But from the uh, little actually, brother, let's move to the no, big brother. Real quick, two two final points. Steve Ballmer is still at the preseason games every night, cheering like an absolute madman. So he has not checked out on this group whatsoever. So you're completely <laughs> right to circle him as like a potential powder keg in terms of you know player movement or, or signings or yeah. whatever. Because he's and all then, in, you know, like he's a good owner, and God knows what this year is going to do to him. Uh, but no, he's way he's way overly competitive. But then the other thing that you just mentioned about the little brother, big brother thing never being more obvious than this year. Remember last year what Patrick Beverly did to Lonzo Ball. What does he have in store this year? <laughs> because the stakes are going to be. Ted times higher, whatever those guys face off on the court, uh, there's going to be messages being sent, I believe. I'm sure they're sick of all this Lakers talk. Look at you, man. That's a nifty little segue to the Lakers. Kevin says, all right, guys, do or die time. What are your predictions for Lakers wins, Brandon Ingram points per game, Lonzo points per game and assists per game, Lance Stevenson minutes per game? So, Ben, I will let you go first here. Well, why? Because you want to say, you know, Brandon Ingram's going to average like 35 and you want to wait until I already <laughs> Dude, do my prediction? It's fucking creepy that you just said that because my answer for Brandon Ingram was going to be 35 points per game. But uh... Well, what do you know? I'm inside your brain. Uh, can I just say, though, the Lakers have really forced me to try to think both with my heart and with my head because I think with my heart yeah I envision this LeBron MVP story 50 wins coming together dude but when I, I <laughs> let me tell you something <laughs> for the MVP post I was shocked that you picked LeBron to win MVP I was pretty excited to see who you picked I could not believe you actually went the LeBron direction so this is what happens when I do pick with my heart I make really rash and, and poor decisions <laughs> Because when I step back and think about things rationally and I realize just how bad they're going to be on defense, how many different areas there could be for fracturing, you know, in terms of personality or guys being upset with their minutes and and so forth, and just the strain that's going to be on LeBron, the style of play, all the pressure, the expectations, you know, Lonzo coming into the season with the injury and just all the rest of it. I'm on the under, you know, for the Lakers. I'm thinking maybe maybe 46. And then I think in terms of Ingram's points, I could see is 17 too conservative? I mean, I know you're going to say 35, but is that too conservative? <laughs> no, if I were really betting, I would say like 18, 7, and 4 for Ingram, which is a nice year, but not like I don't think Ingram is going to turn into 
a full-blown superstar. I think he'll make three or four all-star games, but he's not ever going to be a guy that you can really build a team around. He's probably best as a second star. And so 18-7-4 and four feels like a, a decent starting point for him. So your nephew, Brandon Ingram, has an awesome chain that's all diamonds, and it just says Humble Beast. And okay. I think that... That means he won't be personally offended by how you just lowballed him on all of his stats. But I thought you were supposed to be his number one fan. I mean, that's pretty <laughs> modest statistical uh, output for well, a guy who you're expecting to be this you know big time breakout player. Listen, I've got Mr. Laker on the other line here. Someone has to keep a level head through all this. Um, the Lonzo's- in terms of uh, yeah, Lonzo, I'd say what seven and six points and assists. <laughs> I mean, he's not going to have the ball very much. I don't think. You know. The whole Lonzo PR campaign is pretty unbelievable to me. And and you mentioned going under on the wins. Like to that end, I like I can't believe how many people I've heard talk about the Lakers this year and not only go over, but like go over as if it's inconceivable to go under. And like doesn't everybody see this talent here? Like LeBron's gonna have a great year. Like that's batshit crazy to me. And Lonzo, the idea through the first couple weeks that you were going to bring Lonzo back and he was he's going to be the shooting they need and he's going to be the athleticism they need. Like, did people watch this guy last year? Like, I just don't understand how we're having the conversations about the Lakers that we've been having. So Lonzo, I, I would go higher than seven and six. I think he'll average like, 12 and 6 and he's gonna be fine but like Lonzo's not actually good and I think the sooner people accept that the better off everyone will be I think Lance is gonna get 20 minutes a game which is not a good thing and I don't know I didn't ever expect to be as low on the Lakers as I am but I I think it's it's a reaction to the way other people are talking about them because I feel like I'm taking crazy pills when I listen to the way this team is talked about nationally no, yeah, I'm not surprised, Mr. Massachusetts. But look, I think Lance is <laughs> Lance is going to play less than 20 minutes. I don't think he's going to get that much time. I okay. Think, uh, you know, he's maybe I'd say closer to like 15 minutes, I would hope. Uh, and then I think with Lonzo, I disagreed with, with one main thing that you said, which is that he's not a good player. I think he has the potential to be a big-time plus player for them because of the defense. Uh, because of the unselfishness, because of the pace setting, which is going to be real key to how they want to play. And then because he doesn't stop the ball. He's not a pound, pound, pound guy. He keeps the ball moving, and that will actually release a little bit of pressure from LeBron. I just don't think that what Lonzo does well is going to translate into like big time numbers. Like I just don't think he's going to have the kind of numbers maybe he even had last year because he's not going to be sort of their primary facilitator. Yeah. Uh, but he is also a very good defensive rebounder uh, as well. I think that's going to be you know a, a key factor for them, especially when they play small lineups. So I think Lonzo is going to wind up having a very important role for them. I just think that he's going to be susceptible to people saying. Oh, look at his numbers. He's such a bust. When in actuality, he, you know, he's a he's a pretty positive impact guy. Okay, so I I would like to qualify what I said about Lonzo and clarify what I meant because I do think he's good. I just like I think he's good in the way that Sean Livingston is good and is an, is a plus player. I don't think that he's a factor that can swing a season one direction or another. And I, and I think that's the way his return was discussed for a little while there. And like, 
you know, I think he he helps. He's not going to be a bad NBA player, but he's not going to be like capital G good. Like this is a guy we want to build around. I mean, if it was Kevin Durant and and he was counting on the return of Sean Livingston to to help swing his team season, we would all step back and be like, well, I mean, like good luck with that. But I, I don't know, like. And so that's that's what I mean with Lonzo. He is good, and and he's not like trash the way half the internet wants to describe him. But um, but I think there are limits to what he's actually going to be. The guy who's doing what you, or who will be tasked with doing what you're expecting, which is you know swing a season one way or the other. I think we can Brandon both agree Ingram. it's it's Ingram. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's not it's not Kuzma. I know there's been some Kuzma hype. Kuzma's it's not Lonzo. Guy who just isn't that good, or isn't as good as people want him to be. Well, thank you for coming around to my side of it. You know, Magic Johnson, you know, thanked me at his press conference. Well, not really, but he did say that, you know, Kuzma was left off the top 100 and that was big motivation. For like like 72 hours, I got nervous and was like, oh God, is Kuzma going to like make me look like an idiot? And the rest of the preseason sort of played out and I'm not as nervous about that any longer. But long story short, the guy who will determine their season, and I think LeBron knows this better than anyone, it's Brandon Ingram. You know what? I think it's going to be Rob Palinka and his ability to swing a trade for a big man that could at least help salvage things. Because halfway through the year, I think that's going to be kind of imperative for them. Um, what I would also add, and I've told this to you in private, <clears throat> I'm not sure I believe this myself. And people are sensitive enough these days that I don't necessarily want to adopt this prediction as my own. (laughs) Oh, Lakers are going to be a lottery team. Can I guess? Well, not just that. I I think there's a version of this Lakers season where they go play above average basketball for three months. And then by February, they're in seventh place in the West and it's clear they will lose in the first round. And then LeBron just shuts it down and waits until July. And they kind of turn the roster over from there. And uh, I think I, I don't think that's a likely outcome, but I, I would put it at 10 to 15% as a possible sort of timeline for this season. And, uh, and then, Well, you're workshopping this theory in real time, but let me push back a little bit. <laughs> Last year, we heard that LeBron getting that Cavaliers roster was almost as good as winning a title from certain media members because, you know, look what he was able to accomplish. Yeah. Like, don't don't you think those same voices would come through and say LeBron carrying the Lakers to the playoffs is just as good as winning a title this time around? Like, wouldn't he still have some motivation to not completely shut it down to yeah. at least have, like, something he could kind of check off on his bucket list? That's true, but you mentioned that Lakers roster. I mean, I remember watching Cavs games in January last year where LeBron was just like obviously checked out. And that was with a Cavs team that even then like had a pretty clear path to the finals. Like it wasn't hard to imagine him getting back, but LeBron was just going through the motions and uh and it, it took that like wild trade deadline to kind of reinvigorate him and get him to engage again and um and that well like if you go back to the trade deadline like a lot of smart people who are very plugged in were like whether these players are good or not they're they're important because they're going to make lebron care again so i'm just saying that lebron kind of has this in him where he will check out when it they're when it's clear that like he's not working with a title mix and so i no, wonder whether I, that's I hear possible you. 
Well, I hear you, but isn't it easier to have like only one eye on the ball during a season like that when you know you're going to be a True. free agent and when you realize that you can go be with the Lakers, you know, come in the summertime and so that like the short-term stuff might not really matter as much? Yeah. Like LeBron has committed to a four-year contract, right? So I think the red flag will be not if he necessarily checks out on the court, but if he really ramps up his like off-court propaganda apparatus <laughs> yeah. to like really tell us about in February. That's what I'm saying. Like if we get Michael Jordan, Barack Obama, and like Sarah Palin in the shop, like talking <laughs> in March, that will be the red flag. Yeah. Well, look, there's no question that Braun is going to have to have both eyes open all year long in the West. And I want to be clear that like, I'm rooting for the Lakers to work. I think it, it it would be awesome if it does come together. And and long term, you can go back and read everything I've written about this team for the last like five or six years. I'm pro Lakers in general. I'm pro like old money, aggressively arrogant organizations. I want the Knicks to be good again. It would be fun. Uh, I just I don't quite see it with this mix. So. With that, let's move from the biggest of the big market teams to the Grizzlies. Are are you wearing a Georgetown prep sweatshirt right now? (laughs) (laughs) No, God, you just ruined ruined the Lakers for me even more. Um, But the Grizzlies, Hunter says, will the addition of high IQ and high character players like Kyle Anderson and Garrett Temple translate into a team that might be able to sneak into the playoffs more importantly does this semi-winning environment this is so dark (laughs) does this environment allow younger players like jaron jackson jr and dylan brooks to develop good habits going forward what do you think ben um these are Interesting questions. I mean, I think if there are sleepers in the West, it's Dallas and Memphis of teams yeah. that could be significantly better than people are talking about. I don't really see it happening for Memphis. I still don't think that they've got enough just overall roster balance, uh, perimeter firepower. I think that their style of play uh, is not really going to be able to work. You know, you can't just rewind the clock to three or four years ago when Mark was a, a much more impactful player yeah. and hope that that same style is really going to work. And I don't think they've modernized enough to kind of bring themselves into the modern game. So I think they're just kind of stuck between eras at this point. And I've said this before, but the whole point of this season, if you're a Grizzlies fan, is to become just the biggest stands for Jaron Jackson Jr. Like start the fan blog, start the Instagram page that's like Team JJJ, you know, start, you know, replying to every single thing that he tweets. Just get all in on this kid because... That's all you're really going to have to cheer for over the next three years. It's going to be him and then like, oh, can Conley stay healthy? And like that is a tough spot to be in given Conley's track record and given that their ceiling, even if he is healthy for 82 games a year, just really isn't that high. So to me, my advice would be like, don't even mess around with Dylan Brooks or any of their other like so-called prospects. Just turn it into a one-track mind of becoming obsessed with Jaron Jackson Jr. And, you know, arguing with everybody that he has this higher ceiling than Aiton, he's got a higher (laughs) ceiling than than Embiid, you know, like just go nuts with it, Grizzlies fans. That should be your lane. I like that. And I do like Kyle Anderson and Garrett Temple. It's just... um... Um, you could only get so excited about those guys. I do think they were both really smart signings. The uh, the question I have for you, 
Their first round pick is protected one through eight this year. Do you think they keep that pick? Ooh, that's a tricky it's one. It's tough, right? I th- I think it probably goes. Okay. But um but only because, you know, I'm giving them like reasonable health for Conley and Gasol. I mean, if those guys are healthy, they're gonna be better than that. Yeah. There's so many bad teams out there, Andrew. I mean, but my sh- God, if you're Eastern a Grizzlies fan, what are you rooting for there? I would be rooting for a tank so you can get a buddy for JJJ. Exactly. I mean, that, that would be what I'm doing. Well, because so. JJJ, and I, I think we're going to have to come up with a better name than that, and we could start with Jaron Jackson Jr. Uh, I think that he he's he's worth it. He's worth kind of revamping the future a little bit, and uh, and then we'll see if they go that direction. But uh, I think you're right that that's a bright spot, and that's a good place to start. So... Um, and also that pick will be pretty relevant if the Celtics are trying to trade for Anthony Davis in June. So, um, Suns, Michael says, we all know the Suns will suck this year. <laughs> we have no <laughs> starting point guard. Booker may not be back until November and Dragon Bender could be the worst rotation player in the league. All accurate mm. statements. <laughs> One bright spot so far has been DeAndre Ayton. What do you want to see from him in his rookie year? Michael, thank you for raising this point. I want to see 20 and 10 and 2 from DeAndre Ayton. And uh, he has looked awesome. And I feel pretty validated. It's early. I'm not going to spike playing the both sides yet. of the. <laughs> you're playing both sides of the fence. I mean, you run away from this guy three weeks ago. He has three good games. Now you're running back into his camp. <laughs> Are you with him or without him? Come on. Uh, I'm with him. I'm on Aiden Island. Uh, or I guess Aiden's Island would be uh, the Bahamas. And I'm I'm there. So here we go. That I'm excited to watch Aiden and, and Devin Booker once they're healthy. Um I don't know what to think about Josh Jackson. We'll see sort of what he turns into. Um, but I do think the Suns are going to be more watchable this year than they have been in the past couple of seasons. Yeah, that's not saying a lot, but I agree with you. They <laughs> should be bar. more watchable. <laughs> I mean, what I'm looking to see from Aiden, it's a little bit wonky, but it's, you know, ball protection, right? Like he is going to be the kind of guy where if he does get going offensively, teams are going to be sending help, not just to sort of limit him, but to try to turn him into that turnover type machine. And so I want to see, does he recognize when those situations come? Is he able to pass effectively out of it? Does he develop sort of counters to kind of, you know, uh, you know, move away from the help? Uh, or does he wind up being one of these big guys who brings the ball down to his waist and then it's just all over and it, you know, turns into this black hole, you know, turnover uh, gambit. I mean, to me, that's, that's going to be a big determining factor into how effective of an offensive player he is. Can he you know, be more than a guy who's putting up these quote-unquote empty stats, or can he be a guy who really draws a ton of attention and then opens up great opportunities for his teammates? Yeah, and the answer is yes, he can be that second guy. Um, the Blazers, Senator Batman, and we have to hurry up here because we've gone too long. He asks, Oh my God, we're almost to 90 minutes. Holy cow. (laughs) Will the backcourt be intact next season? What do you think? Uh, I still think so. Um, When I look at them, everything else about that roster has been broken. But the one thing that you can kind of count on from Neil O'Shea is like undying loyalty to his two main guys. And Uh I can actually see from both Damien's perspective and CJ's perspective, while, 
why they haven't gotten impatient yet. I think they both deserve a lot of credit for being patient. I mean, if I was Lillard, I would be very tempted to pull a Jimmy and just, you know, get out of there. Yep. Uh, because the rest of that roster is just so substandard. But Lillard gets to eat as much as he wants. It hasn't held him back from all-star appearances, shoe deals, uh, all NBA picks. You know, he's been in the playoffs pretty consistently. And then for CJ, he's got uh, a number one star who he's, you know, really got a nice partnership with both on and off the court. No ego battles, none of that John Wall, Bradley Beal nonsense that, you know, people like yourself are dealing with, you know, year after year after year. Yeah. There could be a lot worse, you know, situations fit wise for CJ as well. They both have a coach who understands what they do well, puts them in situations to succeed. Uh, so from that standpoint, I think that they will both be there because they will both want to be there. Uh, but past that, I mean, I, I think this is a roster that's ripe for you know being blown up. And this is also an organization that's ripe for a front office change that would kind of come in with some fresh eyes on a few of these players, you know, trade them to just get, you know, to you know start fresh uh-huh. and try to build something a little bit better. Okay. Um, that was good measured analysis from you there. I will... To speed us along, I will say this. I think that the Blazers are probably going to finish in like seventh place this year and lose a first round series in four or five games. And coming out of that, Lillard is going to be more frustrated than he has been over the last few years. And he's going to try to get to LA to play with LeBron James. Um, and we'll see if that happens. I don't know. But I, th- I, th- I think... Oh, you're going to just sneak in a scorcher and you're not going <laughs> to let anybody <laughs> reply to it? I don't know. I hope no one's listening at this point. That's I, that's what I really think is that a lot depends on this season and how much dignity they can reclaim because I don't think they can withstand another like drubbing in the first round and especially and if, if they don't finish higher in the West, like that's probably what's coming. So... Um, I think a lot is right. I do not see any scenario where they win a playoff series this year. And I do think that there is a chance, a fairly decent chance that they actually fall out of the playoff picture. I, if I had to bet that they'd be in the top eight, I would. Yeah. Um, but I would say there's like a a 40% shot that they're not in the playoffs. Wow. (laughs) I don't know if I would go 40, but I, I do think it's not insignificant. Um, Spurs, Christopher says, I didn't realize the level of stress the Kawhi saga gave me that last year. In the preseason, it was nice just seeing these guys play and not have that weirdness hanging over everything. Looking ahead now, what would a successful season for this Spurs team be? Christopher, I think a successful season is keeping that attitude all year long. Just remember that life is good and you don't have that weirdness hanging over everything. There may be some dark nights where you regret or think back to the DeJounte injury and have some, some dark thoughts. Uh, but yeah, just that's a good attitude to, to come into everything with. I think a better plan would to just buy a paper bag and, and put it over your head. I mean, you don't want to accidentally stumble upon a Toronto Raptors game. You, know, you certainly don't want to come across the Raptors in the playoffs with Kawhi doing anything where you're thinking like, why wasn't he doing this for us last year? I think the successful season is already over uh, with the DeJounte injury. Yeah. I mean, I'm not trying to be melodramatic, but that was their season, right? Murray makes a leap. That was the best thing that could happen this season regardless of wins, playoff seeding, I don't think they're really going to win a playoff series. The whole season was about can Murray become a star and then how well do these guys all kind of fit together and like 
you know, can they be an elite defense just because Popovich always puts that out on the court? Uh, to me, that narrative is already ripped up to shreds and they're, you know, more or less just kind of jogging through the motions here uh, from here on out. Sorry to be buzzkill, but that's where I'm at. Yeah, I mean, I won't lie to you. I was so fucking excited to become like a full-blown Spurs stand this year or behind the DeJounte Murray revolution which no one else was calling it that but that's how i felt and uh and i really thought they were going to finish like fourth in the west i still think that that is in play for them i think that they can be really good and uh Derek white should be solid um but i'm still kind of picking up the pieces and i honestly don't know how i feel about the spurs team we'll have to watch them for the first few weeks um but, I mean, to me, like a successful season for Cavs fans is just watching the 2016 finals and championship parade over and yes. over and over on loop. And for me, it's the same thing for the Spurs. Just watch the 2014 postseason run, like just rewatch every single one of those playoff games, watch them smack the heat, you know, watch the cramp game, you know, have a really good time with all of that. You know, watch everybody honking their horns downtown near the Alamo, having a great <laughs> <Yeah>. time. <laughs> like just... Well, just bury yourself in that alternate reality because the actual reality is going to be rough. Yeah, and next year it's not delivery; it's Dejounte coming back strong. Um, but the last two teams here, we have the Jazz and the Warriors. For the Jazz, Brock says the Jazz are one of only seven teams that have five or more players in the SI top 100. The others: Ooh. Warriors, Rockets, Sixers, Raptors, Celtics, and Nuggets. Where would you rank Utah in three to five years within that mix of teams? What do you think, Ben? So basically sort of who's got the brightest future here among these groups. Yeah. Uh, I I think Utah would actually fare pretty well. I'm not going to go through this and do like one to seven power rankings, but what Utah has on its side is the stability factor because all of their main guys, like they're really important pieces they drafted and they're going to be able to have under contract and they've done a great job of keeping those guys happy. Like I don't see Mitchell really outgrowing Utah until after his second contract. So we're talking like eight years down the road, right? Yeah. I don't see Gobert being like, Oh man, I need to go play in LA. You know, I just don't think that's going to be in the cards for him. And so I think that having that foundational base of guys where you've got them under team control is going to keep them in the mix here uh, for the foreseeable future. I mean, to me, and I've mentioned this before, I think they could be a top two team in the Western Conference. I think they have a really, really good chance to be the third seed. You know, I would almost, I'm not saying that's their floor, but I think that's their most likely outcome. Uh-huh. And uh, so from that standpoint, looking forward, like you've got to put them right up there with say a team like Philly, who you know is in the same situation with their core guys, you know, being young and under team control. Uh, you know, Boston, I think is set up very, very well for the future. Uh, Golden State is Golden State, but I mean, I think they're in that you know that upper tier group uh, of those teams. Yeah, um, choosing the Jazz's future over the Sixers' future is an extremely blog boy take to have, but you're not necessarily wrong because it's they they do have that stability factor working in their favor, um, and. Yeah, I don't think I did that. I just said they're in that same group okay. with like those <laughs> kinds of teams. I mean, I guess I'm putting them above the Rockets, who I think you know age wise and, yeah. and where their core is at. I'm putting them above the Raptors because you know Kyle Lowry is not going to be that good in the not too distant future, and I'm putting them above the Nuggets because I just like their talent better than Denver's talent, right? But I think they're you know they're in that upper echelon with groups like you know teams like Golden State, Philly, uh, and Boston. Yes. 
I, I agree with that. I would put Philly and Boston above them, but uh, but Utah is just going to be really good for a while now. Um, and we will talk more and, about and th- them throughout the season. I apologize, well, but we're running out of time. Warriors. No, but real. But that's the key question, though. They could be really good for a long time. Can they be great? And that's what they've no, got to prove. No, we don't. And I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm not sold on that. Me neither. And But that's a... a dour note to start the year on so we'll probably come to that conclusion in mid-may uh but for now the jazz are going to be really fun for the next like seven months but on that note let's move on to golden state iago says aside from possible injuries the demarcus cousins uh addition and kevin durant prematurely announcing he's going to new york city next summer Will there be anything interesting about the Warriors' regular season this year? Terrible framing. I'm so angry at this framing. Andrew, it kills me that everybody wants to just dive headfirst into Warriors fatigue. Let me ask you this. Is there any player in the NBA who you, Andrew Sharp, enjoy watching play more than Steph Curry? Um... Steph Curry, when Kevin Durant is not on the floor, is oh, definitely number one. don't do that. Don't do that. Come on. He's pretty fun when when Kevin Durant's on the court, too. I just think that people are, you know, they're bored with the idea of Golden State. I yeah. understand that they, they kind of suck some of the fun out of the postseason, and they also don't play hard every single night. This is still an awfully fun team to watch on a night-to-night basis. And I don't know. I envision myself probably watching, what, like 60 Warriors games this year? I mean, maybe you're not watching all 48 minutes, but you're going to tune in to see what they're doing. The Cousins factor definitely adds intrigue. And I just think like the conventional wisdom has swung way too hard away from the Warriors. You're not seeing a lot of big, like you know, long form stories. I think everybody's already written every angle that's out there. Yeah, I understand that. But you run these guys on the court. Draymond is still a freaking baller. Steph Curry is still an amazing player. Kevin Durant is still a top two player in the NBA. Uh, one spot higher than Steph Curry. And Clay Thompson's still Clay Thompson. He could be a point a minute guy out there. I mean, this is still an absolute squad, and it kills me that Yago, who we know is a Warriors fan, yeah. would be sucked into this mentality. Come on, Yago, you got to be better than that. I agree. I I didn't like seeing that from Yago. He's usually the one pushing back against my Warriors. Uh, I guess indifference. I've never really been a Warriors hater. The I I. I I'm with you 100%, though, and it's a good note to end on because I completely agree that we're kind of overdoing it on the I don't care about the Warriors this year. Like, it's honest to God pretty bizarre how quiet the the, the Warriors conversation has gotten. Like, I haven't read a single, like, big blowout Warriors preview this season, and... Um, it's bizarre to me. I mean, you know, DeMarcus Cousins is there. That's going to be insane to watch. And everybody is just like, eh, like, we'll get to them when we get to them. <laughs> like, they they are probably the best basketball team ever assembled. So at some point, we should probably make some time to watch them and enjoy them. Granted, they will make the playoffs really boring, but I'm excited to watch the regular season. And uh, I think that they are going to be better than anyone realizes. I mean, everyone just sort of assumes they're going to mail it in. I think that they're going to be awesome this year. No, I'm with you, and we should end on that note. Everybody, guess what? Golden State Warriors are good. Thanks for listening to an hour and a half for us to, (laughs) to get to that conclusion. They're good and entertaining. Andrew, we made it through half of our official season preview podcast. Early next week, the second half will drop. Yep, Monday morning. Covering the Eastern Conference. 
Certainly, we're not going to go for as long on the Eastern Conference because we got about four teams who are worth discussing, but we're going to cover all 15. If you guys have questions, comments, concerns, reactions, debate points, whatever else it might be, don't forget, Andrew said Lillard's going to the Lakers next summer. <laughs> go ahead and email them in to openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Find us on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, and everywhere else. Be sure to give us those five star reviews. Andrew, until early next week, I will talk to you. All right, man. Take it easy. Another great edition of Open Floor is in the books. Did you know Locked On has a daily podcast for all 30 NBA teams? If you're a Lakers fan, search Locked On Lakers. A Celtics fan, search Locked On Celtics. Warriors fans, search Locked On Warriors. Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. Search on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcasts, Locked On, your favorite team. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.